Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is at Eric Bryman, who is the CEO and leading the project Prospera.hn, which I strongly urge you guys to go and check out. This is a Citadel episode. And Eric and I were introduced via um, a, a person who were nameless um, from one of the groups that I attend. And he put me in touch because what Eric and his team are building on a Caribbean island is an incredible project. We are talking low tax, low um, government interference. We are talking low friction and also free market, as free market as possible. And... (laughs) <laughs> in a beautiful paradise so i urge you to stick with this one and listen to this i was very impressed with eric and he's um given us an email address that you can reach out to them if you're interested in learning more about the project uh so before we do get into this this is the the shill episode um excuse me the shill time where i give a shout out to the sponsors of the show that's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten and swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Both of these companies are there for you to start your stacking journey. They will help you along the rabbit hole or down the rabbit hole. They got you back. They are Bitcoin only companies and they have your best interest at heart and want to help you start your stacking journey. So let's get into this episode. Eric. Welcome to the Once Bitten podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me, Danny. Now, uh, this is the this is the question I was going to ask before we started recording. So I wanted to hold up. Uh, I, I'm not even sure, and you don't you don't have to tell me if uh, if not um, whether you are a, a Bitcoiner or into Bitcoin, understand Bitcoin, know it, or I, what, what's sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say better than most, but it is not my primary focus. I got, you know, I've made some investments and uh, I follow it, you know, somewhat. I understand it. I do understand it uh, functionally. I, I can't say I have decoded the, you know, the the code or anything like that, but I understand the general concept and I think it's phenomenal. And I think blockchain as well, generally speaking, but cryptocurrencies, I think is the way to go long term. Excellent. Uh, all right, cool. So then that, that just keeps the rabbit holes opening up for, for where this conversation <laughs> might go. And the reason you and I are sitting down, we, we've never even exchanged emails, I don't think. Uh, uh, I was in a group with uh, a bunch of Bitcoiners where we meet each week uh, with Saifedean and uh, discuss all kinds of broad topics, what's going on right now, what's gone on in the past, what might happen in the future, Austrian economics, all this good stuff. And one of the members of that group said, hey, Daniel, 
I really love your podcast. I didn't even realize you were a podcaster. You've got to speak to this guy, Eric. And I'm like, okay, why? Uh, because he's building this thing called Prospera. And I want to hand that to you now. Like, you know, what is this that's going on? What is Prospera? Sure. Prospera is a platform that uh, seeks to deliver governance as a service for profit so as to generate generalized prosperity. It, it seeks to create a platform where the service of governance is provided competitively and uh, as a service, which, you know, it's a bit of a breaking paradigm from the world as it exists today, where governance is provided by governments that are centralized, monopolistic, and which is um, not very competitive, you know, and, and that the organization providing it is certainly not for profit. It's, um, you know, for, for politics. And where do we find you? Where are you sitting right now? <laughs> so I'm sitting on the Caribbean island of Roatan, where our first uh, Prosper Hub has been started. Um, and um, inside of the first building that has been built entirely following the Prospera legal structure. Uh, Prospera is set up here as a special economic zone with a high degree of legal autonomy from the host nation, which is Honduras, anchored on the Honduran constitution, following international law, and still part of the national territory of the country of Honduras, but with a high degree of legal, regulatory, fiscal, and administrative autonomy such that this special economic zone um, essentially integrates about 80% of the full stack of what governments generally provide from rule sets to you know, every layer of service that you can think of. Uh, so while it's definitely part of the national territory of Honduras and anchored in the Honduran constitution, you know, it's, it's as if um, it's very similar to Hong Kong and how it was to mainland China in the early you know, 99 years when it got started. And it's a paradise, which helps. Well, it is a beautiful location. Absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> I can show you out the window here in a second if you want. And it's, I mean, so, so like broadly what you're doing is you are building the, uh, a community or a society or a civilization based on like, a, like 100% free market principles or like as, as close as you can get. As close as you can get. And, um, you know, there's this whole movement around the world of uh, free cities, charter cities, you know, just thinking of new cities as a space in which innovations around governance can be implemented. And uh, Prosper is certainly catalyzing the development of city scale projects, you know, so our first hub will grow up to be, you know, a small city. But I would say more important than that, uh, it's, the, it's the base layer. Um, you know, so the reason why charter cities and free cities and, you know, new cities hasn't taken off as an industry is because the, the base layer to get them going, it's very hard to stand up, you know, the, the, the designing the governance structure as an open platform for various types of governance models to be implemented, but with a core stack of services that had not been done until Prosper. So there are various groups doing city projects around the world. And, but they're all kind of figuring out the basics from scratch when a lot of those basics, um, you know, can be deployed in a decentralized way and without having to you know, reinvent the wheel every time. 
So the core organizing principle of Prospera revolves around competitiveness and competition uh, in every type of service. Because I mean, ultimately, you know, once you combine choice and competition, we think that the best solutions bubble up. We have a viewpoint as to what those best solutions are. And so whenever we are called upon to structure a service, it's definitely leaning in, in a free market direction. But candidly, you know, third parties could set up services that, in their, you know, that are set up differently. And we think that the best ideas will ultimately surface up to the top. What had been missing was this open platform where you can try different models in a competitive uh, environment where the best of entrepreneurialism and profit seeking are injected into the delivery of governance services. So like, talk us through what's going on. Uh, how do I pronounce it? Rotan? Rotan. Rotan, Rotan. Uh, you've because I, I've been on the website. I've looked around it. Some of the buildings just look incredible. I I, I understand that they're um, artist impressions or uh, designed by architects at the moment, but it looks unbelievable. And I think you're probably going to be deluged with Bitcoiners that are looking to take back more self sovereignty. This is a huge thing within this community. Um, decentralized, you know that that is another huge thing that we we look for decentralization. Uh, a place where you can go and build a business if you want to build a business or live as free as you like, um, however you want. Uh, so, well, let's start with building a business. You're obviously going to be looking to attract businesses to to the island as well as just uh, civilians who want to come and uh, perhaps you know live the high life or have a second property. <laughs> what, what, what's your kind of uh, broad stroke picture? Well, so the idea of self-sovereignty ultimately is a recognition that the individual is the most important organizing unit you know, and, and, and the only one that really matters in the end. And our system is optimized to enable individuals to have maximum freedom in every dimension, which is not to say an absence of responsibility. But, you know, we take a very um, objective-driven approach to how we establish an environment where we make it very clear where the responsibilities lie, but it's not prescriptive in nature in terms of how you're supposed to do things. So that, as an organizing principle, given our philosophy as to the importance of the individual freedom and responsibility, uh, obviously um, seeps into the way in which the ease of doing business is set up. So businesses in all sorts of industries uh, are very well suited to set up here. Obviously, anything that is knowledge work in nature that doesn't require significant uh, physical infrastructure to start is uh, best position currently. Um, we have a number of businesses already operating within the jurisdiction, uh, virtually, primarily, and they revolve around um, knowledge work. Um, you know, crypto and you know, decentralized finance is something that's coming right now. We have a number of groups that we're speaking with to set up a number of mechanisms by which Given the regulatory autonomy, um, we can enable you know, those decentralized finance institutions to set up and, and provide services in an innovative way with a regulatory environment that supports it. The, you know, the first, as you can imagine, so as we're building buildings and selling condos and, and villas, the first thing that's coming online is mortgages, you know, just kind of plain vanilla mortgages, however, tokenized so that uh, they can trade and be you know, used as a tokenized asset. And our role on the matter is making sure the regulatory framework is 
conducive to that uh, while preserving, you know, basic standards of KYC and AML so that, you know, the jurisdiction as a whole is compatible with uh, big picture legal environments and it's not deemed a, you know, a money laundering type zone or anything like that. We take that very seriously. But given our our incentive structure, the regulatory environment can be very innovative and accommodating to this emerging technologies and ways of doing business. Yeah, it, it sounds it it sounds like awesome. And how have the how have the locals uh, taken to um, to this kind of new shift, this new paradigm, this new way of thinking and living that um, is obviously going to going to come and be attracted to what you're building? Yeah, well, you got mixed reviews. Uh, I think the 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 question is probably best answered in terms of those who understand it and those who don't. You know. Those who don't understand it, just like anything that is not understood initially, are wondering and somewhat skeptical that it can take off and uh, have the impact that we believe it will have. Those who understand it are very excited and very happy uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, on an island such as Uruguay, that has essentially been primarily a tourism destination, what we're doing provides a diversification opportunity for a true economy to emerge that can be of the 21st century, you know, knowledge economy based. Um, so those who understand it are really excited. The local business owners uh, are interested in a much better regulatory environment, more efficient tax system, very, very low taxes. So, you know, it's a matter of how deep they've gone into understanding what we're doing. But so far, uh, it's been an interesting mix with uh, very positive reviews of those who have dug in deep enough. Something important about how we're going about it, Daniel, I think worth mentioning because it's part of the core formula, is that it's uh, it's 100% voluntary. You know, the the there's no there's not a square meter of land that is part of the jurisdiction that was not opted into the jurisdiction, and that remains as an open voluntary opt-in model for anybody who has land that wants to opt in, then they go through an incorporation process, an annexation process, if you will. So being 100% voluntary gives us the opportunity to, for the first time, have a true consent of the government through a real contract, not just the hypothetical social contract, you know, a real contract that establishes the rules of the game and which all parties are bound to uh, with legal standing, not just, you know, one sovereign that gets to do whatever it wants, and, you know, individuals that are subjects and, you know, of a lesser standing legally. In our structure, you have to opt in. There is a residence contract that establishes the rules, including the rules by which disputes are going to be resolved. And then everybody is on the same level playing field from a legal standing perspective. Yeah, that's very cool. And you said low tax. I'm sure people are going to want to know more about that. What's, what's the word on low tax? <laughs> Well, uh, first, let me start with uh, the macro view. The macro view is that jurisdictions around the world, at the national level, uh, when you add up all of the coercive revenues that they impose, so a mixture of taxes and mandatory fees, uh, we call that a capture rate, range between you know thirty to low forty percent. You know, obviously, you have outliers in both directions, but governments charge about 30 to 40 percent right for their services of the overall economy that they are governing the closest competitor to us around the world is dubai which has a capture rate of 11 percent 
the U.S., uh, depending on what city you're in, since a lot of cities like New York are very high tax environments, can be no less than 33%. And, you know, no major city in the aggregate is 45%. Again, federal, state, city, sometimes county taxes. Um, Prospera is set up to, uh, in the aggregate, never be able to collect more than 7.5% of its internal GDP. There is a phasing in period under which, you know, that 7.5% starts to get measured. But as a legal jurisdiction, it is capped and never being able to go above 7.5%. And if the taxes that are currently on the books end up meaning more than 7.5%, it is mandated to reimburse taxpayers pro rata their tax contribution. That we thought was very important to establish up front to prevent no matter what and how things evolve, the jurisdiction as a, as a legal foundation from ever growing out of proportion. So 7.5% when our closest competitor is Dubai and they collect 11% in, in capture rate. Now, that's a macro level. From the ground up, the most basic tax that uh, is on the books, there's only three, by the way. But the most basic tax is land value tax. Based on our research, is you know the, the least bad of the taxes, and there are actually some interesting attributes to it including it stimulates development and it incent not only incentivizes development, but it rewards the most productive members of society, right? Because the more production you get out of any given land, you know, in proportion to your activity, the same uh, tax rate for the land value equals that you are more profitable. So it, it's aligned in principle and value. It's also very simple to, to implement and oversee. You know, it's hard to hide land. So... You know, land is on our registry and therefore, you know, it's, it's a very straightforward system. And in our long-term financial models, that's the source of revenue that will over time uh, overcome all others, right? Uh, the other two taxes is one is effectively a sales tax of 2.5% of sales that go directly to the end buyer, to the end consumer that is, and um, an income tax, which is measured as 1% of revenue. So it's, it's 10% flat income tax but we have a presumed income that makes everything super simple of 10%. So you don't have to worry about submitting complicated income statements or trying to game the system to find loopholes. It's very straightforward. How much do you sell? And 1% of that is equivalent of a 10% flat income tax. And that's it. That's, you know, that's the only three taxes that we have. And uh, all of it can be done in a single page when you submit your taxes at the end of the year. <laughs> So there's there's a uh, do, do you know of the Citadel meme in in the Bitcoin space? No, not really. Okay, so th it's a big big thing subject that is talked about uh, amongst Bitcoiners about finding a Citadel, about finding that place where you can go and you can live as free as possible. You can be self sustainable. You can be um, free of um, government overreach and uh, and all of the regulations and taxes and, and such like. You're building it, like the, the, from what I can hear, you are building a citadel on a Caribbean island, and <laughs> it sounds pretty amazing. Uh, so, what is the? I guess if I go one level deeper now, if people listening to this are thinking, "Oh my god, this sounds too good to be true," uh, at what stage are you with? I know you're sitting. You, you said you're sitting in the first building that's been built there. What? Where are you with that, like with the infrastructure and, um, you know, the, the property sales, are, I'm guessing, are like all off plan at the moment. Uh, could you 
give us an overview of what's going on there. Sure. Um, so the first thing to recognize is that Prospera as a platform is intended to be a multi-hub network of developments, okay, medium to long term. We are sitting in the first hub, which currently has already incorporated 60 acres inside of a master plan that extends up to 750. So we're at about 10% of the vision for the first hub. These hubs are not expected to be developed sequentially. In fact, you know, we're already in conversations with various landowners that have master plan community visions and that they would become incorporated into the platform, sharing backbone services like dispute resolution, security, you know, the same basic rule set and what have you. So with that in mind, this particular hub in its phase one, uh, we just completed our first building. So it's, you know, ground level stuff. We, we are completing this initial building, which we call the beta building. And it was more important than the physical structure. It was a demonstration for the first time in physical reality of what we've been developing for years in partnership with the Honduran government based on, you know, a collection of best practices that our network of experts have helped us aggregate so as to create the most favorable environment for prosperity to emerge, which obviously has an, uh, a super high dosage of freedom and individual responsibility. Uh, this building was built 100% within this legal structure, meaning whereas traditionally you need to go through a procedure for building permits and inspections and all that type of stuff, even labor law, all of that was done inside of the prosperous structure. You know, naturally, you know, we ironed out some wrinkles, but it was the first demonstration of a far more efficient procedure, which would have normally taken probably twice as long to do under the current setting, even in our first go around. The very first time we were about half the time that it would have otherwise taken a developer to be where we are now. Um, this building is currently set up as a co-working space on the bottom with dedicated offices and rooms up at the top. Uh, we can have about 50 uh, people working here comfortably. Uh, if we push it, we could probably do 75. Our number one objective right now is to fill this initial hub uh, as we grow out with a handful of clients that are hiring local knowledge uh, employees. As to everything else on the master plan, we have begun pre-selling those beautiful units that you see um, on the renders. And given the number of units that we're building initially, we have stopped pre-selling for now. We don't need any more pre-sales for the time being. We're doing a very first pilot on building those units. Uh, we're not the we're not intended to be the only developers it's an open platform but for this particular project what we're solving for having already solved for let's say the software of governance through the beta building we now need to solve for the scalability of hardware of you know building things cheaply at a very high quality but also fast uh, that's what the next phase of the project is all about we partnered with saha hadid architects which is a world-class architectural firm to not just design buildings that's what shows up on screen if you really look at the supply chain and on, on the construction methodology to build those types of buildings what you would see is that you have a really nice combination between um, modularity and prefabrication as a technology where you're dealing with the complex parts in a factory setting with robots and what have you with the benefits of customization and having a bespoke house or building such that, you know, to you, it feels very custom. In fact, it's very customized to your likings, 
and you basically put it together by combining a kit of parts as if it were Legos to your liking. And in between those two things, there's an online configurator that uh, we're co-developing with the Saha Hadid team and uh, having the first buyers help provide insights as to what are the things that matter most when you are, you know, not only building your unit, but ultimately aggregating your purposeful communities. And so the vision is that that technology then gets offered to the public at large. We believe it's sometimes easier to migrate in groups, like 20 people, 30 people, as opposed to by yourself, right? So a lot of people are nomads around the world, right? And they're with their family and they're just kind of traveling as a core family group, and that's fine. But the vast majority of people are with neighbors and friends. And, um, you know, to be able to combine those virtual relationships and say that location over there shares principles and values. Why don't we all move there? Um, you know, so the online configurator is intended to facilitate that to enable social networks that are virtual currently come together, select a location within our master plan and effectively through that create a demand for our developer team to say, God, if there is, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 groups of people that want that site, they've selected a building type virtually with that pre-purchase of the units, then our real estate team comes in and, and builds them. Um, so in any case, that's that's kind of our role in the matter. Within the master plan, you know, there are macro lots and buildings that anybody who's interested can come in and, and do on their own. Uh, we see ourselves as a catalyst, not as the doer of everything. And, you know, that's why we're just picking our battles very selectively. Wow. Okay. I've got a lot of questions there. Um, first of all, though, um, your, your microphone just keeps hitting your collar. So it's great when you lean wow. forward because, um, yeah. Okay. So if it's Fair like right. that, that's that's great audio right there. Um, okay. All right. So where do I go with that? Very exciting. So if there, for I'll go with this one first. If there's a bunch of Bitcoiners out there that are thinking, have been thinking, I know they're thinking about starting their, their own place to live, their own citadel. They might even have some land. Uh, or they might uh, have found uh, an island or something that they, they want to go and um, you know start this project. Prospera would be able to help with that, like using your platform. Is that something you like sell as a consultation or is that like a package people buy or you know, how, how does that work, first of all? Yeah, down the road, uh, it would be sort of like a licensing agreement for the governance platform with some a healthy dosage of our e-governance platform for interface. The reality is that currently we're 100% focused in raw time and in this location we're you know getting the software fully operational. So it would be a bit premature for me to offer to groups to say we're going to right now go and help you somewhere else. We have a number of interested parties and we're in you know exploratory conversations, but we're really focused here in raw time uh, for the time being. Right. Okay. And if people did want to reach out and find out more about, you know, what's going on and how they might be able to, you, you said you're not taking any pre-sales, but maybe there's a wait list or something. Where, where should people head to, to, to go and start looking into this? Well, so I can give you a dedicated email address, which would be for your, um, for your group. And, and then any, any requests that come from that email, we would prioritize accordingly because we'll know they would have come from your, you know, basically from hearing you so you tell me what address you want us to set up and we would easily set it up otherwise there is the um you know there's the website there is a lead generation form there 
But we can do, for example, bitten at crossfire.hn so that any one of your listeners can, you know, email there and then they will be received with uh, priority. Bitten at crossfire.hn. <laughs> this is so great. Look at that. Like, bam. Yeah, you got your own your <laughs> own email. No problem. There you go, listeners. You heard it. If you want any um, more information or register some kind of interest uh, and get some some further answers about what's going on here, because it sounds so damn amazing. And with this, with, with this, as the society builds out, I'm assuming then, if you know, a lot of us uh, already homeschool, but if people wanted to to uh, build a school as a service, for example, is that something that would just happen naturally, or is that something that uh, you know is already set in place? Do you have kids? You're, you're living on the island. I got three kids: seven-year-old, right. uh, five-year-old, and a year and a half. So you know, uh, we're doing a lot of homeschooling, as you can imagine, nowadays with COVID on top of it all. And uh, we're actually very much looking for um, a team to partner with to set up the first alternative uh, school within the zone. We've looked at, you know, some of the basic models of Montessori or Waldorf. We're actually actively looking for an entrepreneur that would want to have that as their core business within Prosper. Because we think, uh, we think not, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a highly demanded uh, service to have on site. I could probably help you out with a few people there. Leave that one with me. Okay. We, we, can, uh, okay. we can talk about that further at length. Uh, I'm very much entrenched in the alternative and uh, homeschooling world, uh, world schooling, uh, to be more specific. Uh, one, one quick thing I will mention is uh, there's, a, there's a website called uh, GalileoXP.com, <laughs> which your kids would love. They, your seven-year-old is, well, when he or she becomes around eight, that's probably the the perfect time for their for you to start looking into this. Uh, actually, no, start looking into it right now and be prepared because this is self-directed online education. I've got three out of my four kids who are on it. They love it. It makes us completely, no, well, not completely nomadic because my oldest, my 15-year-old, she, she insists she wants to go and hang with her friends at the local lycée. Um, so, but, but this is the exact type of thing that Galileo are trying to do as well. This... At the moment, it's a two-year-old project. Uh, the school itself is one-year-old. Before that, it was a book club, which then sprung into something big, uh, bigger and better. It's completely global, but they will be looking to roll out at some stage. Um, they're going to be called dojos, little centers like you're talking about. So if we wanted to come and visit Khotan, for example, we could come, we could meet the micro school, we could hang with the people um, that the kids have been interacting with online. This is where education's going. I could go on all afternoon about it, and uh, it, it's amazing. Super. I, I love that, Daniel. And, and let me just use it as an example of how we see ourselves as a platform. There's a number of business opportunities out there that in the traditional, highly regulated world have high friction on the one hand, or it's super costly to do because of taxes. We see ourselves as wanting to enable those pioneering entrepreneurs to establish these types of businesses that, look, technology and philosophy has evolved far faster than the legal environments have because the regulators are not set up to move at that pace. And people can argue that that's good. You know, I think we, we have a very good balance between 
protecting sort of general health and safety, but not stifling innovation. So all these modern innovative business models, I think we'll find a very welcoming house here in Prospera where the community that's self-selecting is very much about that way of thinking, right? About unshackling oneself from artificial barriers that are generally philosophically anchored in a non-free way of thinking about the world. And you can move here, be surrounded by those types of people um, that think likewise, that want freedom, that want the best for kids. You know, young families is our target market because we believe that the principles that exist within young families is very conducive to that balance of freedom and responsibility. You know, you start to see the world quite differently when you have kids. Now, we're, we're open to all, but, um, you know, freedom and responsibility do need to go together. And having kids all of a sudden makes you like, a lot more responsible, at least in my experience. Changes you overnight. Yeah. Well, in short, right? It changes you the second uh, you, you lay eyes on, on, on that first, second, third, however many you, you have. It's, um, it's so true. Uh, so let's go back to your childhood because I watched a few of your videos in preparation for this. And that there's one video where you, you share a story about being a kid in, in Venezuela. Is that correct? Is that where you grew up? Yes, that's correct. Um, and Venezuela is a, is a country very much on uh, Bitcoiners' radar because we, we see the shocking state of hyperinflation and what that can do to a country and uh, the, how stifling the, the government has been there and shocking stories coming, coming from there. Uh, and then there's a few Bitcoiners out of Venezuela and there's, there's hope, there's real hope that that, that country can turn itself around if it were to go to a Bitcoin standard. There's a lot of people doing a, a lot of work for that. Uh, so what, what was your experience uh, growing up? And if you wouldn't mind sharing that, that story, if you know the one I'm referencing. And, well, if it's, there are several stories I could tell. There's one in particular that really marked me uh, for the rest of my life and you know, got me down the journey, which has me where I'm at today. And it has to do with being in a car and seeing a kid at the time of my age. I would have been somewhere between nine and ten, you know, so old enough to fully remember it. But uh, I was still a kid and I was being driven to private school. Um, and as I was having breakfast in the car, because I didn't finish at home, there's a knock on the window. I get a little scared. I see a kid my age, but just, you know, scruffy looking, didn't have shoes or what have you. And he's doing this weird sign with his hand, kind of pointing towards his mouth. And I didn't quite get it. But then I understood he wanted my food. You know? um, so I started to roll down my window. But by then, the light must have turned from red to green. And I drove off. And, you know, the kid stayed behind. And uh, I didn't get a chance to give him, you know, the food. It just got me thinking about, you know, the, 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 the life of that young kid versus mine, you know, same age, completely different circumstance, you know, couldn't be you know, more different. It just got me thinking about what was it about the, the world I had been born into versus his. And it got me down a path of thinking about poverty as a problem. You know, it really got me down a journey of really an altruistic way of looking at the world initially, of trying to get rid of poverty and help the needy. Um, but through a sequence of events, including having gone to Babson College and, and, and studying entrepreneurship and the process of wealth creation and, and how, you know, free markets ultimately maximize, you know, the collective good through individual self-interest, 
Um, I kind of looked at that issue in a completely different way. It wasn't about getting rid of poverty, really. I mean, poverty has always been the human condition everywhere in the world, right? Until you change the fundamental layer of how society works and move towards a civilized system of basic principles being understood and abided by, but maximum freedom otherwise. And that's where we flipped our model, or at least I flipped my paradigm from dealing with poverty to dealing with prosperity. And uh, empirically, not through an ideological lens, understanding where prosperity was maximized around the world, it just it became so obvious, right, that prosperity is directly connected to some basic principles of private property, individual freedom, rule of law, you know, just it's, 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 it's you can't refute it. The evidence is there. So then, you know, obviously I read more philosophical um, authors around the subject matter to understand the underlying principles and where they come from. And that's how we ended up designing the Prospera model. You know, it, was, it wasn't so much just about the ideas of what you should implement. I think that has been discussed a lot. What Prospera comes in is about how do you get them deployed? How, how do you actually make it happen, you know, in a manner that is compatible with the world as is? So my childhood helped me a lot because I could see firsthand that this matters. I mean, it makes a world of a difference. The rule sets under which people live and the system of governance makes a difference between literally being poor or being prosperous. Um, anyways, I could go on. Of course, I'm very passionate about it. it. It's something that animates me deeply. And in the end, you know, it's about those kids that uh, had they had opportunity could have been you know, thriving, contributing members of society, but likely that particular child got stuck in a future that is very limiting and uh, and to his personal detriment as well as our collective detriment since, you know, that's uh, wasted opportunity, wasted talent. And how much wasted talent around the world because of these regulations and, and policies that get shoved down our necks for our own good in inverted commas. Yeah, it's, it's sad. And, you know, the more I've dealt with uh, governments and counterparts, whether they're bureaucrats of high end, you know, high standing politicians, the very sad thing, Daniel, is that um, I, have, I, have, I have found very few people that I consider have like ill intentions. They all have good intentions. It's like individually, you can even end up liking them a lot. These are people who the most active of them are deeply passionate about, quote-unquote, making the world a better place. But there's just something fundamentally wrong about thinking that you can come up with the solution for everybody. <laughs> it's just like, it does, you know, it's just it's the hubris of it, right? As opposed to being a lot more humble and, 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 and thinking, as I do or as we do, right, that individuals are best positioned to make their own sovereign decisions about themselves. But uh, it takes a deeper level of humility, and a lot of people who believe they can make the world a better place you know, it requires a certain hubris to think that you can make a big difference to a lot of people. So to then say, and the best way to do it is to step back, it just, it's incompatible, right? And then when you actually have the tools to do that because of a form of government that's monopolistic in nature and coercive, then, you know, you kind of have a perfect storm. And I think that's what's happening all over the world. And don't get me wrong, it's a hell of a lot better than what was there before. You know, five years ago, the world, you know, was less free in some ways. Um, but I think we reached the peak and then we've started to drop precipitously from having been maximally free to now losing some of that in, in some of what used to be pinnacles of, of liberty. And, uh, and that's 
concerning, but you know, you actually you get up and you build an alternative, which is what our team is is doing, basically. That's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly exactly it. Uh, I'm I'm trying to wonder. Well, I am wondering who were your influencers in this um whenever i do these podcasts a lot of bitcoiners they come from uh you know the austrian school of economic um the, the economics they'll they'll quote mises and um hayek and uh, bastiat and rothbard and people like that or they've read um certain books such as uh, the sovereign individual uh the fourth turning uh did, any of those um, people uh, shaped your thinking along this line, or have you come from somewhere completely different and got to the same answers? Well, I, I came from somewhere completely different, which was a very pragmatic way of looking at unleashing individual and collective prosperity. But my education, my proactive sort of uh, pursuit of knowledge has led me to a lot of the same authors that, that you have mentioned, you know, and I won't go through all, but one that you did not mention especially as a, as a 18 year old, 20 year old at the time, you know, Ayn Rand just kind of really gets you thinking about some of these ideas from a novel perspective. But then if you want to get more institutional, you know, obviously you read the, the Austrian authors and, you know, a good chunk of them. I've had a great, great benefit of having mentors and, and professors, believe it or not, at university being of the more extreme uh, ideologies of anarcho-capitalism and all of the concepts they're in. Um, I think one of the books that really shaped my understanding of the underlying system that everybody seems to accept is uh, Democracy, the God that Fails. Mm -hmm. um, and boy, I mean, that's a very chilling book to read and, and fully understand because, um, well, you know, I won't, I won't uh, spill the beans <laughs> nor highlight <laughs> some of the key learnings on this podcast. Uh, I'll rather have people read it, you know, and if they, if they want to form an opinion, they do so after reading that book. But it does show how good intentions often create very perverse outcomes. When did you leave Venezuela? Well, I, I left fairly young. I was late 14 years of age. I kept going back for summers and what have you, but I left at that age to study in the U.S. and I really didn't come back afterwards. I've come for as long as six months at a time, but not as a permanent resident anymore. Oh, so did you move with your family when you were 14 or were you going alone? No, I went to military academy when I was uh, almost 15. October is my birthday. I went there in August. Um, and I stayed in the U.S. military academy for four years. Then I did um, university for four years. And I worked for a bit in investment banking. Then I left the U.S., went to uh, the U.K., uh, worked there for a bit as management consulting. And then I went to Latin America, Panama, Colombia, and um, moved back to the U.S. And now I'm you know, spending a good chunk of my time here in Rotterdam. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite the journey. And very quickly summed up. Uh, I'm sure each each one of those countries, you know, rounded out a completely different experience for you, learning experience, uh, culture experience, uh, and has um, shaped your thinking even further around how to build this 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 new community that you're looking to build. Yes, of course, every country has something different about it. Um, one thing that really jumps out because it's it's such a difference in the U.S. versus Great Britain 
is their mig immigration policies. Uh, when I went to London, um, I went through a highly skilled migration program that they had, but you know the philosophy was completely different. It's a philosophy of attracting highly skilled people and scoring them accordingly. It was merit-based, whereas the U.S., for all of its claim of meritoc meritocracy, was a very randomized system of first come, first serve. You know, no scoring of skill, no scoring of anything, and it really made me wonder. You know why why that was the case. If you want to build a thriving society, you gotta prioritize or at least cater to the most the contributing members of society, right? And without necessarily excluding um, people, but you know you gotta if you if you are going to limit migration for whatever reason, then at least be sensible about it, right? And 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 reward those that can can work hard and create value. Yeah, and I was watching another news clip of yours you were on uh i don't know what it was cnn or cnbc and the lady was interviewing you about um oh man this was like back in 2016 and the, the rise the rise of socialism pretty much was was the was the premise of the the interview through your experience uh you know what happened in venezuela and what you see you still have family there i'm sure and and um very close ties can you kind of flesh out what what happened in Venezuela? What what really started the, the downfall there, and your worries around how that might be spilling over into certain other countries at the moment uh, that you know governments might be seen to be overreaching? Sure. You want a two minute, five minute, or ten minute answer? Ten. Ten. Okay. So the tragedy of what happened in Venezuela is that uh, going from a dictatorship that was right of center, entering into a democracy, which um, was left of center initially. Uh, what happened is that uh, democracy plus free markets and capitalism, combined with corruption and cronyism, it caused a situation that concentrated wealth in the hand of few, uh, exacerbated uh, or, you know, it, it really put on display poverty, you know, because few people were getting extremely wealthy. Um, now, that wasn't capitalism that did it. It was cronyism, right? And cronyism could take hold because there was all sorts of goodies that government was giving, including uh, protectionism and so-called, you know, inside development. So you had these cronyized environments that created small group of people that were super wealthy, whereas the majority of the population was super poor. And in that context, a populist leader, primarily at the time, you know, 98, 99, Chavez, Hugo Chavez, right, uh, ran for office and won as, a, as president. Now, it wasn't his first debut at trying to get control. He led a, or was one of the leaders of a coup attempt in 92, got thrown in jail. But basically, this uh, generalized sense of unfairness and injustice by the population at large, which was being held back, whereas a few were able to, you know, make massive amounts of money, created like the perfect storm for a populist leader to come, elected legitimately through democracy, you know, by promising effectively redistribution. You know, when you have a significant portion of the population that is hungry, a populist leader can just get in there and say, elect me and I'll give you like the basics, food and security and health, right? And, and so he got legitimately elected. Now with the levers of control, 
in a centralized government that could in fact redistribute. You know, that's the first mistake. If you give too much control to a centralized organization, it can be used for, for bad. And so Chavez comes into place, uh, has to deliver on promises, but the only way that he was able to redistribute is taking, right? I mean, government doesn't produce any, any wealth per se. So he started taking by taxing more. And then when that didn't work any further by nationalizing industries and taking over the actual productive fabric of society. Um, and, you know, that only goes so far. So in the beginning, you know, a lot of people were getting a lot more than they ever got. But then in the process, they were destroying the fabric, the productive fabric of the country. And, you know, that came crashing down. And, you know, because things start to fall apart and people fall out of line, you got to increase the level of enforcement. So you take guns from people, you increase policing powers, you put out the military on the streets or paramilitary groups. And, and you know, all of this happened like in real time. Basically, it's just a prescription for how every single movement around the world in history has worked out that seeks to centralize power and become a redistributive state. You know, people at some point start to quote unquote revolt and you got to squash it, right? Because the revolution is more important. The ideals of having everybody have something, whether they earned it or not, is more important. You got to squash dissent. You got to limit freedom, first physical, then even uh, freedom of speech. TV channels were getting shut down. You know, opposition leaders were being thrown into jail and all done with the excuse of helping the poor. When the levels of poverty, which on paper dropped initially, eventually became bigger and worse than ever. The extreme poverty rates in Venezuela have never been higher. Uh, so, you know, in a nutshell, we have the typical phenotype of a charismatic populist leader being elected democratically because up until that point, the levers of power were directed at helping the few and well-connected crony members of society, taking over promising goods and destroying whatever left, whatever was left of, of the productive fabric of society. So that's, it's not typical, it's not unique to Venezuela, but you know, Venezuela is a very recent and extreme case example of this happening in real time. So you look around the world now and how, you know, like what, what's going on? This is, is this all part straight out of the playbook as far as you can see? Well, Daniel, look, to be honest, um, seeing what happened in Venezuela, seeing what's happening in other countries, I, not that I've given up on, on the traditional political system, you know, it, it would be a bit too much of a doomsday to, to completely give up, but I've realized that Sometimes trying to change already existing, especially significant systems is, I don't know, maybe it's too hard, it's impossible, right? So instead of trying to fight people who seem to be convinced that their ideas are good, we're just building an alternative, you know, and we're making it 100% voluntary. And I think that within our lifetime, we will prove beyond any, any reasonable doubt that uh, there is a better model through which to deliver generalized prosperity. And, and we know what the model is, we just needed to find a way to, to deliver it in a, in a mass way. And because there's poverty and because there's need for development around the world, like in Central America, and because doing things in a free market environment does in fact yield more wealth creation, there is a perfect alignment between what these populations need, what investors are looking for, which is higher return on investment, you know, adjusted for risk and everything, and what the productive 
members of society are looking for, which is more freedom and more, more ability to innovate with technology and philosophy that has far outpaced uh, regulatory environment. So combining these three things creates a perfect solution for what people on the ground need, which is not redistribution. They need the conditions for capital to flow, for entrepreneurs to do what entrepreneurs do, and for them to either initially be employees and then eventually also be entrepreneurs. You know, So w- what we're seeking to do effectively is stop worrying so much about what's going wrong in the world. I mean, there's, there's little that we can do about that, unfortunately. And just build the alternative voluntarily without imposing it upon anybody. And uh, I think we're right. And time will tell. And, you know, being right and doing it in a manner that's a platform, not just a single location. Right? I mean, all these efforts, all the capital, all the risk that is going into making this happen, doing so in a platform context that can scale out and replicate itself, itself throughout the world is fundamental. It's taken us longer. It takes more money. But, you know, it's like the difference between doing it once or creating a new system by which this core service of governance is delivered in a manner that truly can, you know, uh, create generalized conditions that are far better for people who desperately need it. Uh, So, you know, what's going on around the world, if anything, is very supportive and validating of an alternative being necessary. I think the time has never been better for this to be needed and viable technologies and new paradigms i mean bitcoin and blockchain you know it's 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 at a peak moment in history and it could not have come at a better time at a more desperately needed time so we're doing our part and you know it's it's no longer an altruistic type mentality it's really about doing this for individual self-interest knowing that it will create a generalized improvement to conditions in the countries that we're partnering with and Random question. Is it the US dollar that's used on Honduras? Honduras has its own currency called Empiras. But within Prospera, there's no capital controls, no restrictions on currencies that can be used. Um, in fact, we're working with a number of, um, let's just say, investors and backers that are very enthusiastic about crypto and making sure that the regulatory environment is conducive for crypto to be considered currency as opposed to a commodity. Interesting. So you're looking into it as well. It'd be amazing if, yeah, if a Bitcoin standard was adopted, that would be um, pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Who, who introduced you to Bitcoin? Do you remember the first time anyone ever kind of got you involved in it? Good question, Danny. Nobody has ever asked me that before. I remember that I, I wasn't like super early into into crypto, but it would have been 2011, yeah, late 2010, mid 2011, or thereabouts. Just remembering where I was. I was in Colombia at the time, and uh, and it just it instantly clicked. You know, it, it just the idea of it was fascinating. Obviously, I was a bit skeptical about the technology being robust and, and, you know, once it's a virtual asset, what's going to keep hackers from kind of taking it. And then I went down that rabbit hole and tried to understand it a bit more. And um, it would have been around 2011 when I first was introduced to it. That's amazing. And I think... Um... Yeah, once we've once we've finished the call, I'll um, I'll follow up with a few maybe books or podcasts that you you might want to listen to as well because uh, I don't know how closely you're following this the, the space, but what's happening is is amazing. And uh, over the years, it's become 
very evident that uh, you know it's um, that, well the, the the meme in the space is uh, you know Bitcoin not blockchain or, or Bitcoin not crypto. Um, you know this is the core network that was uh, discovered. You can only discover it once. Everything else is kind of like uh, taken that core idea and then they put their own little bells and whistles on it and and some of them are extremely scammy so that's but they're they're rabbit holes for another day um (laughs) yeah uh we um go ahead did you have a question or wanted to uh round something out no, no, I did want to mention that Bitten at Frostbite.chain is live as an email address already. So, um, you know, I don't think this is being recorded live, but in any case, yeah, those emails are, are operational now. Bitten at Prospera.hn. That's that Yeah, that's brilliant. Hopefully people will, uh, will reach out to you. Is there anything I've missed? Um, I had written down here... Um, Yes, that's one thing I want to touch on with, and it was kind of what we were talking about just before we uh, we got um, sidetracked. We were talking about uh, the, the rise of socialism in, in countries around the world and uh, UBI being administered to certainly in the US uh, or furloughs as they're called it in the UK. How do you view these? Because you, you've touched on this before, like handing out freebies, I think uh, is the, the terminology that you've used. So you want me to comment on UBI as a general concept? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's less bad than distributing services for free because at least if you give people money, then you can still have some degree of competition in who's providing services in exchange for that money. So you preserve somewhat of a competitive environment. Uh, the worst that you can do is combine free services and free money. I mean, that, that it's just going to be the worst of all worlds. But, you know, if, if you, if you are going to redistribute better, just give people cash and don't do anything with regards to the provision of services as a government. Now, is that better than not doing anything at all? You know, it, it, it depends. I'm afraid, you know, I'm, I, I want to be a purist from a philosophical perspective. And yet I've also seen that the conditions on the ground make a huge difference. And, and to the extent that people are going to have a say at electing their form of government through a democratic system, you know, if, if, if you have too many people that are literally starving, then they're going to be victims or they're going to be easily swayed to very bad ideas of redistribution. So, you know, it, it, it's a matter of degrees of what's good and bad. If you're going to have a democracy, you cannot have a bunch of people be, you know, poor to the point where they're starving because that's a recipe for disaster. You know, the pieces of paper that we call the Constitution or the laws, those are only as good as people are willing to defend them. And when they're hungry, they are going to care a lot less about what some group of men did hundreds of years ago and that system of government than what their immediate need is. Having said that, I'm very concerned that um, things like UBI destroys individual initiative and and you know self-realization. You know, and I don't care what anybody says in terms of just having things given to you for free with no effort. It actually creates a parasite in a way, and that's not a good way to live. You know, so the, the people who are arguing about UBI as as a way to make sure people are self-fulfilled, I think don't get it. I think that. The, the, the primary source of 
of self-fulfillment comes from the creative processes of, of, of actually creating something for yourself. And, and, and that requires hardship and it requires that, that uh, you have to put things at risk, including, you know, your own resources that you work, that it was, you know, at your expense. Uh, and I don't think human flourishing is possible if everything is provided to you. You just become like a parasite. Uh, so, you know, it, it might be a pragmatic thing to do during a transitional period of time if you're not doing anything else. But, you know, now we're entering the unreality of, of things. And um, so it, it's, you know, it depends, like in what country and what is the what are the conditions on the ground? And I could tell you a bit more specifically. Would I rather have UBI versus a tyrannical dictator that's going to implement socialism? Yes, I would, you know, but it would then have to be sort of like um, while you're phasing out free services, you're phasing in some form of UBI and then for a period of time and under certain conditions, um, which, you know, with technology and what have you, you can you can manage a bit better. Um, but look, this is all hypothetical, right? I mean, and, and I've kind of getting, gotten out of that world as much as possible because you can go down so many rabbit holes of debating and discussing and, you know, whether the philosophy is right or not and if you want to be a purist or... If you, and in the end, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Like, what only the only thing that matters is what are you doing to create an alternative? You know, if you think you got something good, then either take the lead at Create It or join forces with groups that share similar ideas and, and are trying to build the alternative. And of course, I'm biased, but I think that's what Prosper is exactly. You know, we, we don't have UBI and you know, we think people need to pull themselves by the you know, strap of their boots and make things happen. And if as an individual, you want a place that's going to give you freebies, well, then don't come here. You know, here is for people who want to work hard and want to have maximum freedom to pursue their dreams without artificial obstacles of either centralized bureaucrats or other people that uh, in pursuit of their own self-interest are going to limit your ability to pursue your own. That's what we're building. If you want to come, great. And if you don't, that's fine. Stay where you are. And, you know, we're not seeking to impose yourselves upon anybody. Um yeah, anyways, a bit on a, I went off on a bit of a rant there. I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, these rabbit holes can really go off on, in any sort of direction. That's what this pod loves. Don't you worry about that. Uh, <laughs> that's why I chose the 10-minute answer earlier, because uh, it's all about getting into the uh, the passion and, and, you know, what what's driving people. And you're so clearly wrapped up in, in what you're trying to achieve. I didn't. I forgot to even ask, and people are going to be screaming at me, like, Princey, why didn't you ask that question? Uh, how much are the... Um, uh, the, the apartments or houses or buildings or whatever else uh, selling for. So if someone was um, considering uh, relocating at any stage in the next uh, two to three years, whatever. Sure. Um, well, these individual units that we are developing in partnership with Saha Hadid, which is a you know top, top, top designer, are not low cost. These are $3,750 per square meter. And the sizes of the units that are going in the market range from micro units that are 40 square meters, so $150,000 or thereabouts, to units that are 250 to 300 square meters. So, you know, you do the math. Um, and the beauty of the configurator is that you get to choose. Now, that's just what, what we're doing initially because we're proving out a technology, but our vision is not for us to be the ones selling real estate. So if there's anybody on your podcast that happens to be a real estate developer and they want to create a product for this community, then you know that that's a far greater value to us and to our efforts than somebody just buying a, an individual residential unit. You know, somebody partnering as a founding pioneer to build here 
and develop here, uh, whether it's a school, a building, a bank, whatever. That, you know, my number one priority right now and what we're really catering to is these founding pioneers of people that want to co-create the world of the future based on these principles and values. Um, so anyways. That's, that's a great point. You know, if there's a Bitcoin, I know there's Bitcoin developers out there. I know. Uh, I've, I've interviewed one or two. And I'm sure, I hope they're, they're listening. If not, I'm going to send it their way. What other kind of people would you be looking to, to, to partner with to, to help build this out? Well, so just entrepreneurs in general okay, mm -hmm. that feel that for whatever reason, they're being held back through artificial barriers, regulatory or otherwise, and they're doing legitimate business. I mean, we do take that very seriously. Like if, if it's illegal somewhere, um, but not immoral, then there's great space. If it's, you know, very obviously going to be in conflict with, with uh, the predominant mainstream thinking of what is moral or not, you know, uh, money laundering, that type of stuff, we, we just, we, we're not going to entertain it. But if you're, if you have a business model or an existing business that can benefit from more innovative regulation and or more fair taxes, very likely, you know, there's a space for you here in Prospera. Uh, the, the industries that we're seeing short term are best positioned to benefit from what we have to offer. As you know, there's the usual suspects of highly regulated industries. So medical and healthcare services in general. Roatan is very well positioned for medical tourism, given the direct daily flights from Houston, Miami and Atlanta. Houston already being a major medical hub. Uh, so medical tourism is a core industry we, we're very excited about and then medical innovation, broadly speaking. Finance, you know, decentralized finance and just, you know, lower friction banking, you know, th basic things like that is, is a huge opportunity. And, and within the finance industry, it's not just banking, but also insurance. You know, why, why do insurance companies need to get locally regulated in a particular territory when in the end you know risks are increasingly global and people are you know traveling all over the place so anyways that there's a huge opportunity there for innovative regulation that recognizes an increasingly globalized um you know world um, beyond that you know we have education as a necessity for the community but also as an opportunity to to innovate around without so much uh, restriction and believe it or not, the construction industry itself is a highly regulated industry. Everywhere in the world, there's usually a building code that's very prescriptive in nature. And, uh, and yet material science and design innovation far outstrips what you know, code enables. And so with Sahara Deed, we're innovating a lot around that, that field as well. And you know, construction and real estate is a massive industry worldwide. Those are kind of the, the low-hanging fruits you know, beyond that, there's a catch-all category, which is knowledge workers. You know, we, we believe that given where we're positioned in Honduras, Roatan, and how we're developing, we are the best place for the best talent of Honduras to live in and play at. So you want to have a place where you can live, play, but then also work. Honduras is short in supply of jobs, but with good internet, as we have here, comparatively speaking, the jobs can be anywhere. So, you know, the, the biggest source of jobs in the short term are knowledge economy jobs for top talent in this country that can compete effectively against top talent in any country. Now, th there are Hondurans here that are better than most anywhere in the world. Now, there might be few, 
fewer in proportion, so percentage-wise of the population, given the educational infrastructure here, it's a smaller percentage that you would like to see. But you got thousands of Hondurans that are top-notch talent, and they can be employed by companies anywhere. So, um, at a, and at a fraction of the cost, by the way, it's not like a low-cost model as in the Indian development strategy in the beginning. It's more like you want a very good engineer or a very good architect or accountant or fill in the blanks, right? And yeah, you're going to pay them $30,000, $40,000 or $50,000, but in the US or in Europe, you would have paid them four or five X that much. You know, they're that good. Um, and that's a model we're exploring. It's the one that most of our local employees are inside of basically for the time being. And what about uh, like visa-wise or passport? Um, do, do you become a citizen or do you have to come on a long-term visa? Yeah, so um, Prospera not being a nation does not issue passports per se. Uh, so people coming here need to be a citizen of some other place. Um, there is a residency requirement that you have to fulfill in order to be here long-term in Honduras. Honduras does not have a migration problem, so to speak, like the U.S. has. So there are, there are several ways to become a resident, especially if you're investing and buying real estate, you know, can be considered an investment. So it's, it's fairly low friction from that perspective to just be a permanent resident in Honduras. Um, and then to be a permanent resident within Prospera, there's, there's an additional application that you go through, which is more about criminal background checks and, and paying the annual uh, residency fee. Uh, which is only $1,300 a year, by the way. So it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward. And if you're a good actor, you know, Interpol's not after you, et cetera, then that's that. <laughs> that's all we care about. Okay. And last thing, like tourist-wise, what, what do people generally come to the island for? Is it uh, diving, surfing, hiking, walking? What, what's, the, what's the word? Yeah, so Roatan is has the second largest coral reef in the world, and it's a it's a premier destination for scuba diving, and that's its primary kind of distinctive feature from a natural perspective. However, I've seen a lot uh, growth in uh, water sports, kite surfing in particular. There seems to be a bit of a following here. Lots of great wind. Um, you know, sailing is starting to pick up. Uh, anything that is beach oriented. It's a good fit here in part if you look at a Google map of Roatan, especially on the northern part, you'll see that there is an amazing coral reef. But what that causes is a, a protective, almost like a protected lake, but it's not a lake, it's the ocean itself, where you still have nice, big, beautiful winds, but the ocean itself is very calm. You know, so it's not so good for surfing like how you would have in Costa Rica, but for kite surfing, for sailing, you know, it's perfect. All right. Well, I'm sure there's uh, another bit of a meme. Bitcoiners tend to stay away from boats, but uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's a whole inside joke. <laughs> that, uh, this this has been an awesome conversation, Eric. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this, and it gives me a lot of hope for... I can now envision in 10 years' time, you can... You can white label this this whole thing, how to build a community, and people can just sign up to that, follow those rules, build their own citadels, build their own communities. And you guys have already done the hard work, and you, you know you can come and get a free look as well. Come and coming over and, and visiting and and uh, seeing what's going on sounds um, 
I want to come. <laughs> I, don't you know? you, I don't know if you picked let me up know, on that. <laughs> let, let me know when, Daniel. We'll, we'll give you, uh, you know, the, the VIP tour. Lovely. It sounds sounds amazing. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that you want to touch on before we re round this one out? You know, what I would say, maybe as a closing comment, uh, and I will, especially for your audience, um, you know, with with Bitcoin in particular being the core focus, the the promise of decentralization. Um, must come with a physical location as well, or in in reality, with a network of physical locations, right? And when I speak to a lot of people that are in crypto, uh, it's it's as if because currencies can be decentralized and some of them anonymous, then we're good. We're like protected against um, over regulation or over taxation. And the reality is that that's not, in my opinion, it isn't so. And the simple argument is that. While we remain a physical species, not just a virtual one, we're going to need to be somewhere physically, right? And the easiest thing for a government that wants to tax, you know, everything you got is, is property, right? And, and so unless there's a physical location that guards individual liberty and, and, and freedom, you know, everything that crypto, that Bitcoin promises can eventually be shut down relatively easily. Now, it's, it's a significant improvement but ultimately, unless you're going to live in Oculus and just live a virtual life, you need a physical location. And the time is now because while the cracks are showing in the system, the system itself is not prepared to shut down the vision that we have for a prosperous way of living that is compatible with the system itself. Again, okay? that's the key innovation of Prosper, if there's any is that we're able to deliver and redirect market forces to maximize generalized prosperity in partnership with governments in a manner that is compatible with the world as is. Now, there's a a window of time during which that's going to be possible. I don't know how long it will last, but I know that the time is optimal right now. And so we share the vision of a lot of individuals that see Bitcoin and crypto in general as a platform, as a pathway to greater freedom and prosperity, but it has to come with a physical component. And I guess I'll close with that. I, I'm, uh, I'm very excited about what's going on with Bitcoin generally. And I also know while it's necessary, it's incomplete by itself and uh, why I you know, see a perfect partnership opportunity between those who are in that world and are in our world. Yeah, for sure. And if that physical location happens to be on a beautiful parad- paradise uh, island, then all the better. Uh, right, Eric, I'll let you go. I know we're getting very close to your your next meeting. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all of this. Uh, really appreciate it. And I can't wait to meet you one day in person. Uh, definitely want to bring the family over and, and see the island, see the project. And uh, yeah, I just look forward to sharing a beer with you. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch. Okay, guys, who's who's coming? How how good does this sound? Uh, this this is pretty uh, pretty amazing. Go and check out the website. I'm telling you, you are going to be pretty much blown away by the, this whole thing. I mean, it, it's not just about um, the, the beautiful buildings and stuff that you see on the uh, on the website. The 
they are just um, architectural mock-ups of, of what uh, the apartments might look like. You, you can obviously... Um, Look, the, the interesting thing here is the platform that he's talking about, this, this, this governance, this, uh, this way to set up a society in a, in a much fairer manner and uh, let people and businesses prosper uh, under a much fairer system, a system that we've never been able to prosper under before because we live under these uh, nation states all around the world that do their best to stifle innovation and stifle entrepreneurship and just keep taking uh, rather than rather than giving and it's um this is a whole new paradigm and this is exactly what we're here for self-sovereignty and more control over our own lives and this is what they're trying to do he's Eric, when you're listening back to this, um, I know we talked about a little bit about Bitcoin in the uh, in the show. Um, you're, you're you're clearly so far down the rabbit hole without really uh, realizing it, and you are a maxi in the making. So, when you get exposed to a few more Bitcoiners, uh, I'm sure um, you'll 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 come to appreciate this this community as much as this community would have appreciated everything that you've been talking about here. You know, less friction. Uh, lower taxes, less regulation, uh, more self-sovereignty. This is exactly what this community is about. Really appreciate you taking our time to come on the show and discuss all of this and educate us about your project and what's going on. Uh, don't forget, guys, if you want to reach out, Eric did drop in a email there that you are able to uh, contact him. Uh, that is bitten at prospera.hn. B-I-T-T-E-N at Prospera, P-R-O-S-P-E-R-A dot H-N. You can reach out with any questions. Now, what I'm thinking is there's a Bitcoin conference coming up in Miami in June. There's a 100K party coming up at some point uh, in Miami. And Eric did mention there's direct flights from Miami to to this island, uh, Rotan. And also from Houston, I think he said, from memory. Two huge Bitcoin states have direct flights now. You guys do the math. And um, go book your flights, reach out, go get a tour around this, this island, what's being built. This could be the Citadel for you. Or you could go and help if you're a, uh, a housing development company or if you... Uh, as he said, you know, education expert, alternative education expert, or you know, you're, you're, you've studied the school of Montessori, then that could be the place to go and set up a, a business, or any of these uh, tourist activities that he was talking about. Uh, you know, I know there's some some guys here that love their scuba diving, and uh, just stay off those boats, guys. You you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, That was a great show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Eric, for coming on. Thank you, you guys, for listening. Thank you, swanbitcoin.com. Thank you, coinfloor.co.uk. Both of those companies, you can go start stacking some sats. Use forward slash bitten, and you will get a a cut on commission with uh, Coinfloor, or you'll get a free 10 bucks with Swan. And go follow those companies. Check out what they're doing, because... There's a lot more to come from both. And from me, thanks guys for listening. 
Thanks for sharing, liking, commenting, reviewing. I look forward to the next show. Take care.